0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the library. And um, thank you so much for coming in this evening. Um, We, you know, we worried all winter about um, snow and ice preventing people from coming to our events. And um, now we're worried, now we have to deal with um, this summer in March and... It's hard to uh, bring people inside, but we're very glad to see all of you. Just wanted to plug a couple of programs, a couple of our Writer's Live programs that are coming up next week. Um, Dorothy Wickenden, the executive editor of The New Yorker will be here on Tuesday evening to talk about her book, Nothing Daunted. And on Thursday, a week ago from tonight, we are hosting an event for David Shipler, the Pulitzer Prize winning author. Um, who will be talking about his new book, Rights at Risk. Um, You'll find information about these programs and other upcoming events at the Pratt on the table outside. We'd like to thank the Ivy Bookshop, who's here selling books this evening, and you can purchase a book um, after the the talk, and um, um, Professor Carpenter will be happy to sign it for you. And also, we want to thank the Hearing and Speech Agency for um, providing interpreter services. And finally, to say thank you to the ACLU of Maryland for their support of t- uh, tonight's program. Um, here to introduce uh, Dale Carpenter is David Roca, a staff lawyer from ACLU of Maryland. David?
1: Good evening, everyone. I'm honored to have the opportunity to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor Dale Carpenter, who is the Earl R. Larson Professor of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. And he has received numerous awards for his teaching there. Professor Carpenter teaches and writes in the area of unconstitutional law, the First Amendment, and sexual orientation and the law, and is a graduate of Yale University and the University of Chicago Law School. Um, And my introduction to his work came from his blogging at the Volokh Conspiracy, which is a law blog where he posts periodically primarily on issues related uh, to marriage equality. And speaking of marriage equality, let me just mention very quickly uh, that I'm sure most of you here or all of you here know that Governor O'Malley recently signed into law the Civil Marriage Protection Act of 2002, which made Maryland the eighth state in the country to allow same-sex couples to legally marry. Uh, We at the ACLU worked very hard uh, for many years to get that bill passed with our coalition partners. And we're now working together with Marylanders for Marriage Equality to defend that law against a possible referendum this fall. Um, I hope that all of you here who care about full equality for lesbian and gay people will sign up to learn how you can get involved in this effort. I'm gonna, um, when I sit down, pass around some signup sheets. So please uh, put your name and contact info on them. Professor Carpenter joins us tonight to speak about his new book, Flagrant Conduct, which is a fascinating account of the story behind Lawrence v. Texas, the 2003 Supreme Court case that invalidated laws criminalizing same-sex intimacy. I won't give away the heart of his story, but as someone who does civil rights and civil liberties litigation for a living, uh, I thought that the book offered a really important contribution to the scholarship about the Supreme Court, uh, presenting unique insight into how a case ends up at that court and how it gets argued. And I think it's also an important contribution to the history of lesbian and gay rights in this country and tells a very important story that deserves to be fully heard and understood. I'm looking forward very much to hearing Professor Carpenter talk about this important case and his book. Please join with the ACLU and the Pratt Library in welcoming him here tonight, thank you.
2: Well, thank you very much for the introduction. And um, I also want to thank Judy for uh, bringing me here tonight. It is a great honor to uh, speak at this historic place um, where, so, where um, the, the very building itself seems dedicated to learning and to reading and to uh, knowledge. Um, my book uh, comes in part from my experience as a teacher. I teach constitutional law, I teach the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and I teach a seminar on sexual orientation and the law. And it comes in part from my having lived in Houston, Texas in the 1990s when the sodomy case, as it's sometimes called, Lawrence versus Texas, Um, began, had its roots, and I knew uh, most of the people involved at one point or another, Um, and um, I knew a lot of the lawyers who were involved in the case, and I was also involved in Republican politics back then, and uh, knew the party quite well, and the party ultimately helped to bring about this um, lawsuit through its steadfast opposition to any change in the law. Um, Lawrence versus Texas is one of the most important constitutional law decisions of the past half century. Um, As you just heard, it's a case in which the court struck down a homosexual conduct law, as it was called in Texas at the time, a law that forbade certain sexual acts, but only if they occurred between two people of the same sex, not between people of the opposite sex. The decision striking down that law by Justice Kennedy in 2003 is perhaps the closest that gay men and lesbians in this country have come to the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education which struck down racial segregation in the public schools. Yet the background of this case, the factual uh, background, the developments that led to the Supreme Court decision, the decisions about how to present the arguments to the Supreme Court, so far have gotten very little attention. And I think those facts shed some light both on the position of gays and lesbians in Texas and around the country, for that matter, well into the late 20th century, and into the way that the Supreme Court itself works and the way lawyers fashion their arguments for the Supreme Court. Um, I had, um, uh, the beginnings of this book uh, were really in an article that I wrote for the Michigan Law Review back in 2004. Now, um, law review articles are read for the most part by people who work in libraries and by law professors, uh, but they're not read by many people beyond that, unfortunately. So most of the things that I have written in law review articles are completely unread as best I can tell, except by me and maybe a couple of things I forced on my mother. And that's about it. Um, but I did write a law review article about this case back then. And as I was thinking about writing that article, I expected it to be a very standard constitutional analysis of this transformative case in American uh, American law. And I realized that to write that article, I needed to have a background section. It was going to be Roman numeral number one after the introduction in my Um, law review article. And then I had to figure out what the facts were. So I went to the Supreme Court's decision, one issued by Justice Kennedy, and I went to the decisions of the lower courts. And all I found was something like the following story. In September of 1998, officers with the Harris County Sheriff's Department entered an apartment in Houston, Texas, where they observed two men engaged in anal sex. Arrested them and charged them with having violated the Texas homosexual conduct law which forbade sex even when it occurred in private much less in other places. A law which was unknown and unenforced for the most part against private sexual conduct. Then lawyers became aware of the case and took it to the United States Supreme Court where they won this ultimate victory. That was about all we knew. And I first thought to myself, that can't be the whole story. In fact, that can't be the most interesting parts of a story. So I started calling around to some friends of mine in Houston, where I had lived for a period of eight years, and began asking them about the case. Now I went into it assuming that the basics of the story were true. That officers had walked in and observed the men having sex and then arrested them. So I really started my questions of the activists I knew in Houston by assuming that the police had actually seen something. When I asked that question to them, the first response I got from one of the old civil rights activists in Houston was, wait a second, Dale. You're assuming that these men were having sex, and that the police actually saw something. And I held on to the receiver for just a moment, and reflected on those words, and said to my, and said to uh, this person, um, "Well, of course I'm making that assumption. That's the basis for the entire case. That's what the police said." And he replied, well, I think you need to do some more digging. So I started doing more digging. And I found out that some people close to the case did indeed say that the police likely didn't see anything because there was no sexual activity going on in the apartment that night. And other people close to the case, mostly the lawyers who were very concerned, I think understandably, about the legacy of this very important watershed decision, told me that they don't talk about those facts. And as soon as I got that answer, I said, now I have a story. So I dug a little more. I interviewed the officers and as many of the lawyers as who would talk to me at the time. And I came up with this little law review article about the case, in which I concluded that it was unlikely, improbable, that the police had actually seen anything in the apartment that night. Uh, that article appeared. was read by a few people, but not by many. And um, it sat there until a friend of mine um, who is a law professor sent a copy of the article to an editor at W.W. Norton and Company and said, I think this is an interesting story. Uh, there might be something to it. So the editor read it and emailed me asking if I would like W. W. Norton to publish a book on the case. Now, I had no agent. I had never written a book. I had no idea that anybody would be interested in a book on this subject. And I think I thought about two seconds before I hit the reply button and said, yes, I would be interested in doing a book on this subject. So that began what turned out to be an eight-year odyssey in a very, as much detail as I could, interviews of the, more interviews of the police officers. I actually got to interview the two men who were arrested, John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner, and I got to interview almost all of the lawyers involved in the case on both sides, both for the defense and for the prosecution, and surprisingly, a number of court personnel who were willing to talk about what had happened behind the scenes, and actually three of the judges at the lower level in the state courts in Texas. And from that I I put a number of these conclusions about that research in the book and I I don't have time to talk about all of those conclusions tonight but I'll highlight a couple. Uh, But in addition to not having time I want you to buy the book because (laughs) I don't want to just repeat everything that's there so you feel like you're excused from buying it. So please do. There's much more than I could possibly say in the next um, 10 or 15 minutes before we get into your questions about the, about the case. But here's, here's basically what I concluded. First of all, only four officers went into the apartment that night believing that they were responding to a weapons disturbance that had been reported by a third man who was the, turns out, the partner of one of the men inside the apartment. Um, he greeted the officers when they arrived on the scene shaking and crying and told them that there was a man with a gun in the upstairs apartment. So the officers went up, they knocked on the door, they announced that they were with the sheriff's department in very loud voices so that any, anybody could hear. They didn't have any interest in surprising anyone who might pop out with a gun and start shooting um, and saw no one. This is what they said inside the apartment and they started to go searching through the apartment and found nothing until they came back to a back bedroom. And here the police say that what they saw, one of the police officers says, that what he saw was two men engaged in um, sexual activity inside the darkened bedroom which had light in it coming from the hallway. Um, He said that the officers guns were drawn and pointed at the men. That he shouted at them repeatedly to stop what they were doing, but they would not stop. He then said that the officers turned the light on in the room and continued, the men continued to have sex with each other and would not stop. He then says that John Lawrence turned and faced him face-to-face, looked him directly in the eyes, and then turned back and continued what he was doing. This is with gun police officers, guns drawn on them, the lights on in the apartment, and authorities shouting at them. Now, I think that describes a superhuman physical feat a prowess that no amount of pharmaceuticals could possibly (laughs) produce. It defies common experience and reason. If you told that story to a jury, even to a jury in the state of Texas, I think that the jury would not only have acquitted the men, they would have laughed themselves out of the jury box. It's quite clear to me that the police, in fact, saw nothing that night except what they did see. What they did see was two men that they very quickly concluded were gay and believed that that was enough to take them off to jail and arrest them. Because while the Texas statute on its face, if you read it, applied and said only certain kinds of conduct was prohibited. In fact, what it prohibited was certain kinds of people. The law said it was aimed at conduct, but it was actually aimed at demeaning and stigmatizing an entire class of people with 400 years of history behind it. Going back to Sir William Blackstone who said that it was a crime not fit to be named and a crime against nature. All of that persuaded these police officers that they could walk into the homes of this private home, walk into that home and arrest two men for doing nothing but for being something that offended them. That's what happened, I believe, in Lawrence versus Texas. Now, through a series of machinations that I'm not gonna describe unless you wanna go into it in in answers to questions, the lawyers, the civil rights lawyers headed by Lambda Legal, a national gay rights organization, got a hold of this case wasn't inevitable that they would get a hold of this case. It happened also through a series of accidents and contingencies and serendipity. They got a hold of the case, and they realized that they had a once in a generation, maybe once in a half century opportunity to finally challenge the constitutionality of sodomy laws in the United States. And they knew, based on their own experience in the past of having challenged these laws in the States, That it was really only, you were really only able to challenge the laws if you could get two people arrested. Now the way these laws had affected the lives of gay men and lesbians is that they had not been used so much to interrupt people having sex in their own homes. It's Very rare for the police to be there at that kind of moment. The way they were used was as a pretext to deny things like employment to gays and lesbians who wanted to work in a police department. Because after all, how could criminals be enforcers of the law? It was used against gay men and lesbians who wanted to be teachers in schools. Because after all, what kind of role models did these misdemeanants or even sometimes felons provide for our children? It was a series of laws that prevented gay men and lesbians from adopting children or from having custody or certain visitation rights with their own children on the grounds that they represented something dangerous to them. That they would teach them something uh, to be criminals in life rather than to be law-abiding citizens. It was used by landlords to deny people housing because we didn't want lawbreakers in our apartments and, and renting rooms in our homes. The sodomy laws were not enforced against private sex but they were enforced every single day in the lives of gay men and lesbians across the United States in countless ways. They were only one pinpoint in the law but they suffused the law. They were present in all of the law and they were used by courts and by legislators and by some people as a reason to deny the most basic civil rights of uh, of this class of persons. So the Lambda Legal Team developed an argument (coughs) against these sodomy laws that was built on certain very basic constitutional principles. One of them was that people have a fundamental right to be free of government intrusion into their most private spaces and in their most private decisions. This had built on court decisions going back 50 years, 100 years, dealing with things like the right to raise a family, the right to marry, the right to use contraceptives, which one state had forbidden even for married couples at one time, and including the right of women to reproductive freedom. Um, They also argued that in addition to this right of privacy, the right to make these decisions without having government intervention, they also argued that Even if, generally speaking, the government could have such laws, it could not draw artificial and arbitrary lines among citizens, saying that some people could engage in this conduct, but other people, because of who they were really, could not engage in identical conduct. It was as if we had two speed limits, one speed limit for certain favored people, another speed limit for certain disfavored people. Now the state of Texas, as you can imagine, ended up defending its law, although in a very haphazard and sometimes half-hearted way. It was clear that the Harris County District Attorney's Office was not very interested in defending the law and they were not on a crusade as one of the main main prosecutors told me. Instead they felt they were duty-bound to represent the state of Texas in court and allow legislatures to make decisions about what kind of conduct to forbid and what kind of conduct to allow. It was not their duty to um, get rid of those laws. That's something the legislature had to do. They defended the laws on the ground that the state of Texas had the power and the right to enact morals into criminal law. That this sort of homosexual conduct law reflected a long moral tradition and that laws are constantly based on notions of morality. Now what was interesting about this argument is that it was partly true. Laws are partly based surely on morality, a sense of right and wrong. Racial discrimination is wrong. Discrimination against women is wrong. These are not immoral or amoral ideas. They have a moral basis. But what was so odd about the Texas defense of the law is you had to ask yourself, what kind of a grand moral tradition was it that said to the people of Texas and said to people across the country, really, you have a right to have sex with an animal, as Texas allowed, but you do not have a right to have sex with your partner, someone to whom you have committed your life, someone to whom you have made a sacred obligation. That, Texas said, we will not permit, but if you cast a longing eye at Fido, that's okay. That was, that is grotesque. That is a grotesque use of state power. It is demeaning and stigmatizing to a group of people. And ultimately the court said, If you want a criminal law that intrudes in such a fundamental way into people's lives, you have to have some greater reason than we want it this way. You have to have something beyond that and Texas could produce nothing beyond that. The confrontation over this case, as I point out in part of the book, was taken all the way to the Supreme Court in a very tense and anxiety-filled courtroom and oral argument in march of 2003 led by a fantastic lawyer for lawrence and garner named paul smith who works out of washington dc who was mostly prior to this known for his work in business litigation but was himself an openly gay man who had uh, made his name through other kinds of cases not through gay rights cases Um, On the other side it was represented by Chuck Rosenthal, the Harris County District Attorney in Texas who had never ever before argued an appeal, much less an appeal before the highest court in the country. So if you take one piece of advice away from what I have to say today, and you ever think about becoming a lawyer, here it is. Do not make your appellate debut in the Supreme Court of the United States. It is a very demanding forum. The justices expect you to know what you're talking about. They expect you to know the facts and they expect you to know the law and they expect you to know how the law applies to the facts. And unfortunately for Chuck Rosenthal, he knew none of those things. And it showed and produced one of the greatest mismatches ever in the history of the Supreme Court and ultimately helped to produce this decision in Lawrence versus Texas. Before I um, stop, I wanted to read you just uh, two very brief passages from the book that explain in the first passage why I chose the title of flagrant conduct for the book. And in the second passage, um, what I think is in uh, in a way the, the ultimate significance of this case. So here's, here's the reason for the title, flagrant conduct. There was plenty of flagrant conduct in Lawrence versus Texas, but this epithet so often directed at gays and lesbians does not describe the behavior of Garner and Lawrence on the night they were arrested, even if the police really did intrude on them in flagrante. The flagrant conduct in the case was, in the first instance, the behavior of the police themselves, from the moment they handcuffed the two men to the moment they dragged Lawrence out of his own apartment. The flagrant conduct was the use of precious prosecutorial time and money to pursue two men for sex in a private home, rather than to pursue truly public and genuinely harmful acts. The flagrant conduct was the cowardice of elected state court judges who refused even to listen to the men's legal claims, shifted responsibility to other courts, and likely capitulated to political pressure. The flagrant conduct was the blatant effort by a political party to make judges enforce their policy preferences. The flagrant conduct was the passage of a law selectively burdening one small group of people on the pretext of preserving a moral heritage applicable to all. And the flagrant conduct was the refusal of those stalwart legislators in the Texas legislature, year after year, session after legislative session, decade after decade, to repeal that law, even when it became obvious that it served no public purpose other than to justify discrimination and to dignify animus in every realm against a tiny minority. So the flagrant conduct does not mean the conduct that Lawrence and Garner might have or probably didn't even engage in that night that they were arrested. And Then let me just close with a reading, brief reading on what I think is the significance of this case. Um, It has many possible significances, but it, it is at least this. As long as Lawrence versus Texas shielded them, never again would gay men and lesbians be presumptive criminals because of their sexual orientation. Never again, they hoped, would they be denied jobs because their lives were defined by membership in an outlaw class. Never again could a landlord refuse them shelter because they were unindicted lawbreakers. Never again would their children be taken from them solely because the sex of the person they love made their parents misdemeanants or even felons. Never again would their rights be dismissed by the highest tribunal in the land as, at best, facetious. Never again would their legal representatives have to argue around a precedent that attached a stigma to their very bodies. Never again would they wonder whether the words engraved on the pediment of the Supreme Court building, "equal justice under law" included them. The Constitution was now their constitution, too. Thank you very much.. Yes, happy to answer questions. I, I don't know how long you want to go tonight. OK. Yes. Um, did you read the arrest report? Yes.
3: Uh, I was, I, did they describe the uh, sexual
2: activity they encountered? <clears throat> the arrest report was an affidavit signed by one of the officers that night. There was never a trial. It was 69 words long. And I could probably find it for you if I looked, but the gist of it was we walked into an apartment, we saw two men engaged in anal sex in violation of the law, and we arrested them.
3: Uh, they didn't go on to say how they shouted at them and they
2: continued? That came from my interviews of the officers. Oh,
3: okay. All right. Um, I, I, what I don't understand uh, with, with all of this and the other things that have happened, especially in that one, I don't know if it's this county, that one county in Texas where I don't know how many men now have been released uh, with the, the DNA evidence and it's been shown that uh, the, there's been Brady violations and all like that. Why were there no prosecutions from the Department of Justice for the prosecutorial?
2: Well, I don't know that there, I can't speak to the death penalty cases. Harris County uh-huh. Harris County, as you know, is the number one death penalty county in the country. It's the same county. Okay. Um, so I don't actually believe that there was prosecutorial misconduct in Lawrence versus Texas. Well, the judges weren't on this, me... well um, there was. There was um, never and the, the facts of the case were never contested, and there, there was never a trial. There was never a hearing. The prosecutors kept themselves deliberately in the dark about the facts. This was, we have to remember, this was a class C misdemeanor in Texas, but for these prosecutors. It was a punishable by $200 fine, which is the equivalent of a speeding ticket in Texas. So there was no, the only, the the role of prosecutors in the case was, number one, to prosecute it, um, and number two, to defend the constitutionality of the law. There was never any factual investigation by the police, and scarcely little, as best I can tell, by the defense attorneys. Very easy and in fact both, not just easy, both sides had an incentive to look the other way on the facts. Thank you. Good questions. Very good questions. Yes. Is it, is
4: it
2: the Can I come out from behind here? Sure. Is that all right? Can people hear me? I feel kind of oh, silly. Okay.
4: Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. Is anal sex still illegal, or where is it illegal, or is there a law anywhere in the United States that says you cannot have anal sex? Sure.
5: There are 18 states with sodomy laws that, if you look in their criminal codes, are still on the books. Uh, what Lawrence versus Texas did is it meant those laws were unenforceable. So if you bring a prosecution, so a prosecuting authority in one of the states, the defense will cite Lawrence versus Texas and it'll be dismissed people still get arrested and harassed by police. It is unconstitutional to make to enforce the law. The what the Supreme Court does is it says Enforcement of this law is unconstitutional, but it does not order the state legislature to actually vote to repeal the law and strike it from the criminal code. Every state's criminal code has in it lots of laws that are unconstitutional, or archaic okay, and never enforced. And in fact, state legislatures have been asked to repeal this law since Lawrence versus Texas on the grounds that the law has no purpose because it can never be enforced, and they refuse to do so. Yes. yes. I have to power to,
4: the to get theater tickets. I'm going to have to out. But I would appreciate you clarifying some substance questions I have. Clarify: Did the, the two men, Lawrence and Brown, remember, The Garner. Their names were. Did they? Um, it had been my impression that they paid the fine. Yes. So uh, if they paid the fine. They do so
5: without admitting guilt because it's quite a little fuzzy. But they could trigger it as a live case to have standing to us if they did a right. This is meant to be, be an easy question. It's harder than you think, though. I know. Like <laughs> I'm sorry, the cut cases. The crucible! <laughs> uh, but, but no, it's, it, it is, it is. It is um, a, it is a standard practice to say all of the things alleged by the police are true, nevertheless the elements of the, the, the crime itself, the elements and, and so on are, um, cannot be constitutionally enforced. That's what the men did. They do not contest, they pleaded no contest on facts and they said, given these facts as alleged by the officers, we walked into a home and arrested two men for having anal sex, the law is unconstitutional that's done, all, all of time the lawyers for Lawrence and Garner had no interest in challenging factual basis for the arrest. No, no, I
4: understand that. The fact that
2: they pled no contest did not preclude them from challenging the law. No, no, exactly. They said,
5: hey, we're allowed to do this. We have a constitutional right. How can you arrest us? They um, did sign a statement in the county court, the county uh, criminal court, the lowest court of record in which they appeared means that there's a, a, you know, someone they're actually recording the hearing. So, of the signing of the statement, it says, We acknowledge that we engaged in the acts as alleged by the state of Texas. So, they, they are on record saying they did it. Um, they had to do that, they believe, and they probably rightly prefer challenge the law. Thank you
4: very much. Sorry, this sounds almost like a setup.
5: Well, uh, there have have been claims. In fact, I have a whole chapter in the book devoted to claims that some people have made, that gay rights activists set this up in order to challenge the law. Um, That is absolutely not the case. I know why people have thought that, because we've been so in the dark about the background facts. And they've said, how could police ever possibly walk in on two people having sex unless they wanted to be caught? And be arrested and challenge the law. I have to tell you, as one of the police officers himself told me when I interviewed him, if this was a setup and these men were just acting, they deserved a category <laughs> It's just absolutely impossible if this was any kind of a setup. In a sense, if there was any setup in this case, it was a setup by the police, because if I'm right, they arrested them for doing nothing. So it was inadvertently the police themselves who furnished. Set up for the challenge that the are yes, involved. Uh, in writing this and researching this, you've been a lot of psychology. Uh, I was wondering if you would like to talk a little bit about how people are so candidly what other people are That's right. I, you know, it's actually, a, that is a fascinating question, which is not the subject of my book. Um, there are books that voted. I mean, I I would trust your judgment about that as much as I would trust anyone. I think probably these laws had their roots in a very, you know, a very long time ago. They may have had to do with uh, views about uh, uh, procreation, religion, and ultimately survival of the spirit. It's not part of my book, so I don't want to speculate on all of that. All I can tell you is that is that the sex lives of other people has, as you know, been a subject of great absorbing interest mm-hmm. to the government and to other people for a long time. <laughs> yes. um, obviously, marriage equality is a key issue across the country, and I think that you're in Maryland right now. In you- Minnesota, where I live. Yes. Do you see the, the case offering, or the decision offering, any uh, precedent that will be uh, in play as cases work their way probably to the Supreme Court over the uh, whole issue of American politics? Well, okay. Great question. Uh, first, I should have a disclaimer, for Trump, and then I'll give you two answers. One points <laughs> in one direction, and one point <laughs> in another direction. Okay? The disclaimer is this is not a book about constitutional doctrine theory, and so I'm not attempting, none of this book is a little bit toward the end, but this book is really not about explaining just his opinion take a book or
4: a books to try to tease out. Um, I talk a little bit about it, but it's really not a book about constitutional doctrine. Um,
5: so with that out of the way, um, I would say two things in general. Pointing in the direction. The marriage. I would say the decision removed a huge roadblock on the path to marriage. Because it would be very improbable to say that you have a constitutional right to marry someone, that you have no right to do sex with. So getting rid of this obstacle was a necessary but perhaps not sufficient. Um, effort of marriage than have. on the other hand what I would say is, is not uh, a final conclusion but maybe a slight um, word of caution and that is that um, Lawrence versus Texas was the product of a very sophisticated law <laughs> out considered legal strategy in which the basis for the argument was, strike down the Sodom law. You are not leaving the country. You are following the country. Only 37, 37 states have already got through their Sodom laws by the judicial decision provided by a legislator yeah. um, So you're not doing anything revolutionary. The 13 states that remain never this law. So you're just following the rest of the country. This is a mainstream. Contrast that potentially with a marriage application uh, strategy. Where I think the narrative on the anti marriage side will be um, if the court strikes down opposite the sex marriage laws around the country, it will leave the, the country, Because 44, 43, or 42 states, however you count them, still will the not now, in principle, it shouldn't matter how many states do or do not accept the Constitution law. That, that, that should be true in principle. In fact, it doesn't have uh, We have this, I think, somewhat outdated conception of the court as being employed was a group one for just under the country that issued all these uh, rights and the that's an aberration for this history. We have to get out of our thinking It's not the court of faith. It's not the court of the right that we have. It's was somewhere in a law So these are things that point in an opposite direction. Like today, I don't
4: That something in the Scalia dissent, I guess it was, said yeah. something that could be helpful for the um, that parents.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the question is, uh, was there something in Justice Scalia's dissent that could aid the cause of constitutional claim for same-sex marriage?
2: Uh, yes, I did, I didn't get to
5: go into that too much. But Justice Scalia's dissent specifically says. That Justice Kennedy's opinion, striking down the sodomy law, is such a radical opinion that it will lead to a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Because he says, when you think about it, if their morality, our idea of what is moral and right in the world, is not enough to justify a law, then how can we justify excluding same-sex couples from marriage? That's based on our moral view about what marriage is and what it should be. And Justice Scalia specifically said that it would not be a sufficient interest to say, well, opposite sex couples can appropriate, because as Justice Scalia noted, older couples can get married. We've never had that elimination. Sterile couples can get married. So that doesn't furnish a basis. So there is language in Justice Scalia's opinion that I am quite sure will make its way into at least a sprightly footnote. Uh, the briefs that are filed in uh, any marriage litigation in uh, court, court now. I don't want to make too much of that because number one, Justice Scalia is not necessarily going to persuade everybody that we should have same-sex marriage, <laughs> and number two, I doubt he's going to vote for it because I don't think he will be bound by Florence versus Texas in his court. So it's uh, it's interesting to think about right they can get married without <laughs> yes, they they yeah. having children now I know this from, from experience because my mother got married at 65 yeah. and uh, her husband was 80 and they're not having
4: any kids <laughs> <laughs> so yes I, I actually have
3: two quick questions one okay. I haven't read the book yet. So when the
5: police went into the apartment, did they break the door down or was it open? And they just walked in. Well, um, the no, they did not break the door down. Um, the uh, I didn't describe it. It's describing the book. we okay. great, uh, maybe too great detail. <laughs> but in the book, um, I I say that the, the door was um, either slightly ajar already, and they just kind of knocked on it that had the effect of opening it a bit and then they pushed it open and then they looked in the
4: living room and saw nobody, uh, They said, "They said, Or it was unlocked and they just
5: opened it up and let themselves in after having knocked. But they knocked and announced. Well, that's, that's according to them. And uh, so they didn't bust down any doors. That's just not the case. And was that it? Well, actually, I was curious, what made you get into law? I had really good teachers. One in the third grade who taught us a part of the Jordan. It was a young, many of you may know, it was a representative of Houston
2: area. Um, a great uh, a hero. And um, uh, that was a third grade teacher. And then in high school, I had a great
5: uh, Social studies teacher, social studies social, uh, social studies teacher taught us about law and civil rights, and then I took a constitutional law, civil rights course in college. That just hard to explain why you like what you like. <coughs> These things just uh, grabbed me. That's why i went to law school. I wrote my senior history thesis in college on Brizel versus Kennedy. And I went through the Plant Parenthood uh, documents at a, a library that they had in the pavement. It's called a historical library, which no one had ever heard of to a senior history thesis on it. So I've done this uh, story before.
3: Yeah. So uh, historians, tell stories, and so do lawyers and I'm interested to hear you talk more about what you think the uh, the ethics are of the story that the lawyers told in this case, I mean the the blockbuster dues from which was dues to me not having worked specifically on this case was that the, the fundamental allegation, the fundamental premise that you say behind Lawrence in Texas turns out not to be true. And obviously, for reasons that are clear to me as a civil rights litigator, clearly why the lawyers would not want to talk about that. Um, but I'm interested in your thoughts about the legal ethics. I mean, I, I have my own views. but I, I'm, I'm very interested to in hear your, your thoughts what that means with respect to the role of lawyers as storytellers, particularly the role of civil rights lawyers as storytellers. Um, well, maybe some I have other questions. That, that's that's question. enough. <laughs> 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 not good enough. Um
5: It's a great question. I think what the lawyers, the language believe this case was neither uncommon or certainly not uncommon. Lawyers craft the story of the courts All the time and emphasize the elements that are most positive to their side and emphasize the elements that are least helpful for their side. If that's unethical, it's practically a little bit of a discussion. Which some people may make, but I don't think so. Um, And it's not unethical, at least on the mechanics of of legal ethics, as I understand it, for lawyers to fail to Test facts that are alleged by the police. Because after all, even if your goal is to make sure that you do the best thing your client, um, you may think that perjured police testing will be believed by the jury. And as a lawyer, you have a fundamental choice. If you test, but you know it's not true untrue in what the police are saying, then take the risk that the jury to believe the police, which is a real risk. Or, challenge the arrest on some of the basis of constitutional law. I think even just in terms of his interest, including, including what happened. The other thing is that Lawrence and Garner themselves, not initially, but uh, I think after their meetings with the lawyers became convinced that the police should not be allowed to do what they did, and it was in their own interest, as they saw it, to aid the larger costs of the I don't think the lawyers um, cajoled them, or threatened them, or intimidated them, or them. I had no reason to do that. They told a very powerful story, you know, and, you know, a true story, about a history of discrimination yeah. that they must be lesbian. now. how they could be people who don't challenge So I think what they did what that was. So it, it, it's not, our system is, as you know, is not a system in which the goal is to get out. Always have representatives on each side representing their view. We don't have an inquisitorial system.
3: Well, so do you think that this this new story now about the case, um, what's your thought about how that will affect um, the court's view? for not just the Supreme Court, but other courts view of like being gay, civil rights litigation or other civil rights litigation? Yeah, I, I think a very,
5: um, it's great, that's another great question. So I think a very facile uh, reaction that some people have, may have or might have uh, is that this somehow tarnishes the case. It wasn't really, there wasn't really anything going on. Why are you worried? Um, somehow diminishes the decision. I just say I find that uh, remarkably obtuse. <laughs> but, um, I think this that I think what we know now makes this case worse than. Me. I mean it's bad enough that the police can come into your bedroom and arrest you for being engaged in intimate conduct that everybody should have a right to engage in. It's even worse. If the law leads them to lie about your having engaged in then expect to be believed. Especially when you're in circumstances like these men were, where you're unrepresented, you don't have money, you don't have any clout, you're not an atheist person. And police just think they can haul you off to jail because they don't like the poster you have on the wall. Uh, you can call them Gestapo, as Lawrence did, and they tried to arrest them. Uh, Jack Lubin does, I think. Although they didn't like that. Well, I'm sorry citizens have a right to be impolite when they're in their home arresting and doing nothing. Um, so I, I think it makes the case more compelling than it was than we ever could have us See.
4: Is homosexuality illegal?
5: Is it illegal? Is homosexuality illegal? Well,
4: um, uh, sorry.
5: Well, it, uh, as I said before, there are places where it's still on the books, but wherever there are laws and certain specified acts on the books, they're not enforceable at Farns versus Texas. So uh, it's, it's not illegal to engage in these acts in private consenting, adults, not for
2: commercial gain. I mean you know there are parameters on this, but a
5: basic choice to be incident with another person who's controlled with privacy and stuff It's uh, a lot of four hundred years of history to go through on this stuff <laughs> Yeah. So
4: yes. where are Lawrence and Garner now? What are they doing? Well. Um, is that book? Time,
5: yes, it is. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty well known. Actually. Tyrone Garner died in 2006, oh. and uh, you know he never had a steady job never had a home never had a car and he died in those circumstances Uh, John Lawrence gave me an interview in April of 2011 in which he was finally allowed by
2: the lawyers to tell his full story he said he was not having sex
5: police officers lied the first time The reason he told me that story is that he knew he was in poor health. He didn't have law. He died this past November. So I was able to get this story just in the nick of time. Too late for on Garner, sorry to say. But in enough time to get at least from John Lawrence his own truth about this case.
4: How old was he? John Lawrence was 69.
5: Was he seven? At the time, I no, 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 no. Uh, yeah. uh, he was 55, uh, I think at the time to do arrest. He was 67 when he died. Tyrone Garner was 39 when he died. Uh, all three men would be part of that time and okay. Okay. we got one time for one I more was really interesting,
4: and I was just thinking about how it wasn't only really about the but it's about, you know, not about the what election. So I was just thinking about how, in so many other situations, we exercise their power to, you know, become whatever they're wearing, or how they're carrying themselves, or their race or other factors you It's
5: like junior high school with the tongs. <laughs>
4: Um, so I just think it's interesting that this case got so far and now the truth is coming to light, I guess. So I don't know if That's what my question is. <laughs> says that? Um it's just interesting that it happens. I, I guess I wonder if your question if people really realize how often things like that happen or lie. Or you know they're they people and they do whatever they want and they don't know or they're not the teachers, you, you know, all these other issues that like this happens all the time. So do you think people will kind of realize that's that or say, Oh, this is a one person, or anywhere educational thing? I've got a question. Why is it that big government? Well, I think that's a
5: great question. <laughs> we shouldn't um, she she asked will this cause people to question? people say, I can assume that
4: are correct, uh, I can give you a hopeful answer or I can give you an honest answer, <laughs> I doubt
5: it. Tell <laughs> yeah. it's the story. People would say it's a one-off. Too bad for them. It's good if they can come out and show the victory of the system. In some ways, that's true. Um, but I, I, I doubt that um, it will use the general to just trust the police. I'm not sure that it should um, I you know. I, I have to tell you. I came to the conclusion. I can't case Very. Reluctant. I didn't grow up distrusting police myself. I grew up thinking they are enforcers of the law. Officer Frank came to the classroom. These are our friend. And so I had to be. I had to be dragged to believe it. Police by a lot of times. I was curious about it, but I didn't come to believe it, and it tell you, it has not caused me to disbelieve all police officers. I still believe, it, for the most part, that people have taken you through very difficult circumstances. But it has it has caused me to be a great deal more skeptical than I was before. But I had to go for nine years of research to get to that point. I had to sit out at police parking lots at 3 o'clock waiting for police officers to get off their ships to talk to me to get to this point. So I doubt many to uh, do, the same, do the same thing. Sometimes uh, our system of justice uh, really is a system of justice that reinforces your faith. And uh, the versus Texas does a little bit of uh, really that.